Thank you for joining the Georgia Chamber podcast. For 105 years, we have been the leading voice of business in the state of Georgia. Through these podcasts, we want to help you better understand the issues facing our state and how your business can grow and prosper. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, go to www.gachamber.com. Hello, I'm Chris Clark, president of the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, and I want to welcome you to our uh, weekly resiliency roundtable. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule as Georgia begins to continue to reopen to join us for a conversation that hopefully benefits you and your business. Um, You know, I want to give you a couple of reminders before we get started. Uh, Last week, our organization released a, a, a statement on the social uh, injustices and inequalities and racism. Uh, We are now partnering with the U.S. Chamber and other chambers across the country for a June 25th day of dialogue on the inequality of opportunity. I hope you'll be able to join us for that discussion and more will be released in the next few days. Also want to remind you that we are still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, We had Dr. Toomey on just two weeks ago who warned us that as we start relaxing Uh, and reopening, people are going to think that it's okay just to to go full steam, and that's not the case. We're still dealing with rising cases across the country, and we're still averaging uh, new cases in Georgia every day. And so wearing your face masks, continuing to practice good safety protocols, following the governor's instructions, extraordinarily important. We want to continue to encourage you to follow those. And you can learn the latest updates at gachamber.com slash COVID-19, where we continue to update. Our latest update on there are the new flexibility legislations on PPP. Uh, I hope hope you'll go there and download that information. Um, I also want to remind you that the Georgia General Assembly begins their session next week. Uh, Based upon current events, we are focused on two important issues. One is passage of the hate crime legislation that we've discussed on past calls. And the second is liability protection for businesses just like we have on a call today who are reopening but are worried about the risk of liability and uh, frivolous lawsuits. So we want to get on with it today. Uh, We made the joke we should have had this at about five o'clock this afternoon. But the way uh, work from home is going, I think we're all having cocktails earlier and earlier in the day. Uh, And we are, you know, we're proud of Georgia's um, uh, uh, brew scene, uh, our wine, our liquor, our beer uh, has just grown so quickly over the last few years. But I do believe this industry is a microcosm of the larger entrepreneur uh, spirit of the state of Georgia. Uh, They're dealing with issues. They're having to pivot just like all of your business. So I hope today that whether or not you enjoy the cocktails or not, Uh, that there are lessons to be learned here from our friends. So we have three great panelists with us today. Uh, We have Renee Moss from Farmer's Daughters Vineyards and Tasting uh, Room. She's a third generation family farmer uh, and the marketing machine behind Farmer's Daughters Vineyard. Uh, They have, uh, they're in Mitchell County with their vineyard, but they're also in Thomasville with their tasting room. And I'll just go ahead and put it out there that Bombshell's my favorite wine that they do. Next, we have Dr. Trip Morgan, who's founder and owner of Pretoria Fields, just up the road uh, from Renee in Albany, Georgia. Um, Trip hosts our Georgia quail hunt for the last several years. Uh, We have a great event there. Um, And I know you're a, I won't get this right, but you're the owner of the Albany Vascular Specialist Center. So you're a hot heart doctor, but you got a heart for beer. Uh, And so we appreciate that. And um, Trip, 
honestly, farmhouse berry ghost is my favorite brew that you do. Uh, and I appreciate what you do there so much. And then also we have from Atlanta, uh, Dennis Malcolm Byron, uh, who I would say is AKA Al, uh, Ale Sharpton. I knew I was gonna get it wrong. Uh, uh, Ale Sharpton, um, listen, he is a world-renowned beer authority, uh, award-winning journalist, blogger at alesharpton.com, event programmer, show host for Cruising for Bruising, uh, and he also is a co-founder of a creative agency, Always Open. And so we've got three great folks here with great lessons. And what I'd love to do to get us started is I'll let Renee kick us off and just spend about five minutes telling us about kind of what happened. And there's my phone ringing in the background of this, forgive me. You know, tell us what happened through the last, you know, four months with Farmer's Daughter, how you adapted and kind of where you are now and how you look at moving forward. Renee, take it away. Okay, can you hear me all right? All right. So um, <clears throat> well, it feels like the last few months have actually been about a year's worth of um, change for us. Um, so just very quickly, the overview of what we did is uh, as soon as about mid-March when we needed to um, bring the kids home, um, we had to completely shuffle all our schedules to figure out how to, um, you know, support all of our employees. We are a female-run business and our tasting room is um, completely staffed by women. So we've got a lot of dynamic going on there with people who work in the school system and also um, women who are trying to homeschool their kids and juggle their work hours. So that was a, a major um, kind of juggling thing, but we do that every time the seasons change. So that's kind of not really new for us, just a little bit sudden. Um, the first thing that we did was put the curbside ordering system in place um, and kind of develop a brand to go along with that to promote the fact that um, we were trying to sort of make um, lemonade from the lemons we were given. So just try to, to put a fun spin on it and uh, make people feel comfortable and kind of laugh about how hard it was to be homeschooling and how we needed wine and we needed to make wine more accessible. Um, so we put the curbside system in place um we developed a quarantine survival kit um which was basically whatever i have in my tasting room and in, in in excess if you want to buy it if it's cheese if it's salami if it's wine beer cocktail mixers anything that i can provide for you that i have in excess um you meaning all of our customer base as well as our employees all of it was basically just made available for quick curbside pickup or shipping um where you know where laws permit for specific items so that was a, a quick thing that we added. Um, and then um, as, as things kind of progressed, we realized um, we were obviously not gonna have the traffic to be able to support. Um, we have about seven employees in the tasting room, excluding ownership. Um, there's no way that we could pay those folks. And I was very, very blessed because my staff, for the most part, they, um, I'd say of my seven, five have primary incomes and I am just facing on the cake for income. So my, my folks are amazing. They're incredibly selfless people. They stepped up and said, we don't need the hours, give them to those who need the hours. And so I really just had two people to worry about. Um, so I was really lucky there. That took a lot of pressure off of me. Um, so we just put our heads down and worked as hard as we could to um, basically meet twice a day, um, management meetings twice a day to try to figure out what, what, are, what are the rules of today and how are we gonna get around that? How are we gonna make people feel comfortable? Um, so we basically had to reinvent ourselves every day. Um, March traffic dropped 89%. 
in uh, the last two weeks of the month. Um, so that was pretty painful for us. We have been incredibly blessed with huge growth every year. Um, so we usually see uh, 20 to 30% annual growth and it's fairly consistent. So for us to have an 89% drop was pretty, pretty bad. Um, obviously. Um, so in addition to the curbsides and kind of making that available, um, once we were forced to close for um, dine-in, we kept retail open. Um, we can do that because we kind of function like a liquor store and being a retail bottle shop, but also we're agriculture based and owned. Um, we're actually owned by Hawthorne Farms, um, and that is our, our parent farming entity. Um, so we stay open for that reason as well, um, but obviously we had to make a lot of changes in terms of um, when are we allowing people in, when are we not allowing people in, how, how are we doing everything, right? We, getting supplies, making sanitizer available to people. So obviously we were kind of, um, kind of rolling with the punches as they came to just keep people safe and also um, keep kind of fears down, um, kind of avoid any kind of hysteria about the situation when in fact we were actually quite terrified ourselves to be honest, right? Because we didn't know what we were encountering. Um, in April, we completely revamped um, how we ship and our entire shipping system. It was a huge step for us. Um, and honestly, I just try to keep looking at the silver lining um, as, it, as it comes to us. Uh, obviously the pandemic has been a horrible thing for all of us to encounter, but um, I needed to go from shipping to six states to shipping nationwide. And it's a painful, painful thing to navigate um, in a business such as ours. Um, and so we decided to go with, um, with Vino Shipper specifically for our, our needs. And we went to more than 40 states immediately overnight. And um, we saw a huge change in the amount of packages that we're shipping. And I've got data, I'm happy to kind of share on that. But um, what, what basically happened for us between March and April is we went from a normal tasting room with 95% of our sales happening in the tasting room to um, having about, if we were lucky, 30% of our sales happening through the tasting room, which was pretty painful. Um, and then we went to about 65% online and still a little bit of wholesale delivery. So um, it is a major shift for us, pretty painful. Um, and then by the time we got to April, we actually were split in quarters, which was really interesting. 25% um, shipping, 25% wholesale, 25% um, curbsides, and then 25% when we got to open up at the very tail end of April. We opened up for dining again and serving April 28th. So we were pretty much the unicorn, the very first to open up. Um, people, don't know what we are, they don't know if we're a bar or a restaurant. Um, winery tasting rooms are just, we're weird, right? We're different and anybody who works in this business can identify with that. Um, so we kind of tried to use that to our advantage and being able to um, just find a good niche where we could continue to operate and do it as safely as, as possible for people and just be accommodating. Um, and then, so we saw a, a further shift. It's really interesting when we got back to May, we actually, our sales are now um, slightly above where they would have been um, this time last year. So we've actually come up, we are, um, I think I saw that we are about 3% up from uh, 2019, May 2019. Now that's not the 20 to 30% increases we've been seeing, but considering what we've just been through and how painful that was, I'm ecstatic with it. Um, what we saw is that we went back to 82% of our sales being through the tasting room, um, about 9% shipping and 9% wholesale. Um, and now curbsides and tasting room traffic are kind of all 
um, together. I've, I've actually changed our system several times in terms of technology just because this was the prime opportunity to embrace um, any kind of painful big changes like that. Um, without the tasting room traffic coming in and doing tastings, without the ability to take care of those people, um, we were actually able to put our heads down and go, all right, how can we how can we streamline processes? How can we do this better? How can we make better cocktails? How can we, how can we just take better care of the customer? Um, how can we innovate? What new systems can we put into place? And these are just things that we wouldn't have had the time and patience and bandwidth to be able to do um, if we hadn't been kind of temporarily paralyzed by um, the lack of traffic walking into the tasting room. The other thing I should mention is that people in Thomasville know me and they know that um, I will come and put wine in their car any day, any time, night, weekend, what, as long as it's legal for me, I will put it in your car. I live a mile away and people know me and Thomasville is a great, amazing, small community. So I would get constant texts from people, Facebook messages. Hey, what are you doing? How can I safely get wine? What, you know, and people know I'll, I'll, I'll do what it takes. And that's what we do as business owners, right? I'm not unique in that either. That's what we all do. So hopefully that gives you a good overview. Is that kind of it? Yeah. That's great, Renee. And I, I do want to come back in a few minutes and, and talk about the more specifically about your move into shipping and, uh, and accelerating your innovation as well, because we've seen that with a lot of business sectors. But Tripp, tell us about what's happening and what's happened at Pretoria Fields. Um, wow, that was great, uh, Renee. Uh, we we have a similar story, um, except for the fact that we we did not stay open uh, for the brewing business. Um, we pivoted a little bit. And so uh, to kind of describe that, we around St. Patrick's Day, which I think was when um, when everything sort of went down uh, big time, or at least it went down for us big time, um, Albany had, a, had, you know, we, we were super hard hit as far as anywhere, as far as if you just look at how the country, what happened to everything, we had a bomb go off right here. So that was happening at the same time. Um, we were trying to figure out were were we just going to close or were we, you know, was everybody going to go on? Uh, sorry about that. Was going to be um, on short-term uh, unemployment, and so we were looking at all of those options. And uh, we actually have several different. We're a farmhouse brewery, which means I have a we have a farm. Um, we grow organic blueberries and blackberries, uh, small grains, and we've been. We've actually been trying to uh, develop that into a um, into an event space. We just hadn't quite gotten there yet. But so working in that, we've also gotten into. We have the first uh, hemp extraction license for the state. Well, we we got the first. I think several other people have gotten them now. And so with that in mind, we um, I'm also a pharmacist, and so we had several of our compounding pharmacists were working on products for the CBD business. Um, and lo and behold, uh, they couldn't get hand sanitizers, so they had come up with their own formula for hand sanitizer. Uh, and then my wife sent me a text and said, um, have you seen what's going on with this? And it was somewhere up in the Northeast where a, um, where a, uh, a distillery had, had started making hand sanitizer. And uh, I said, yeah, we can do that pretty, pretty easily. And so we so basically we shut down our production and we took the isopropyl alcohol that we have that we just that we clean things with and use the WHO formula to make hand sanitizer. Um, uh, a quick aside on that. So to be able to do that, we had to get our licensure changed. 
and generally to get, not changed, but amended. And generally to get something like that done, it takes weeks to months. Like literally it's send a piece of paper and then they send you a piece of paper back and send another piece of paper and they send you a piece. But they walked, we called, uh, told them what we wanted to do and they walked us through the process and it took a couple of hours. So kudos to, to uh, Governor Kemp for that because we were, we were able to, it was obviously a need, a need in the community. They saw it and, um, and they cut through the bureaucratic nonsense to say the least and, and helped us get, get set up. So, so we were able to do that um, on a small scale and then we opened up and suddenly everything, and we, we worked like 24 seven, let's say for um, a day and a half. And we thought we had a ton of product and it was just all gone immediately. Um, so, I mean, we did, we gave some of it away to first responders. The hospital showed up and bought it. We had, um, we had, uh, whoa, did I just mess that up? Oh, okay, there we go. Um, the hospital first responders. Um, and then, then we start getting calls from bigger organizations uh, actually wanting to buy hand sanitizer. So then it became like we were out of what we had. It became a logistic logistics problem from just sourcing bottles, sourcing um, uh, the different components, which, you know, plastic comes from China. China was shut down. Um, logistics, just the country was beginning to shut down. So trying to get trucks from one place to another was, was difficult. Um, and then finding the different components. So we ended up uh, at a Cordial. Um, there is a company called Synergy. Synergy actually turns the unused alcohol that's at, uh, that the distributor has to take back in that's quote spoiled. Um, and they, they generally turn that back into ethanol as a fuel additive. So they also got their, their um, uh, license changed so that we could use it as a, uh, an, as a hand sanitizer, basically. And so we went from brewing beer one day to using our tanks for hand sanitizer. And instead of, you know, laying off 13 people, uh, we hired an additional 10 people to, to put, um, uh, basically to do everything by hand. We were doing everything from gallon jugs to eight ounce, eight ounce bottles. And uh, for a while we sold out of everything we had. I think we did tractor trailer loads of ethanol there for a while. Uh, we sold um, three tractor trailer loads just to the VA uh, itself. We ended up getting um, FDA registered to be able to do hand sanitizer. Um, but it's sort of interesting, things like that, as quickly as it came, uh, it also went. So uh, we actually have a ton of hand sanitizer on hand if anybody would, anybody needs it out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that's how we pivoted. I mean, I, to be honest, you know, um, we're, we're a smaller brewery. We, um, we, were, we were poised to have a really good second quarter uh, when all of this happened, and our monthly beer barrelage uh, was around 200 to 300 barrels, we were trying to get to, to the to the 400 barrel mark. Um, and the other the other thing about that is a large percentage of what we were doing was on premise. On premise means like, 
you know, restaurants, bars, et cetera. And so if we didn't have as many off-premise accounts as we did on-premise accounts, so it didn't, it, it, w- it hurt us in the beer business because it didn't allow us to pivot or just to change our production to off-premise sales. Um, whereas a ton of, a ton of the larger, a larger breweries um, actually have had very good last couple of months um, because people were drinking a lot of, a lot of beer on the off-premise segment. So, um, so I, you know, I, uh, overall it was positive. We went from, you know, everybody being sort of down to everybody being community driven. Uh, We had a purpose to be able, you know, we were, we had changed what we were doing, but it was something that was both keeping everybody, keeping our employees working as well as, having them purpose driven to help the community. So, uh, you know, if there, it was a silver lining to a black cloud for sure. Well, Tripp, I want to come back and talk about Albany in a few minutes with you again, but I do want to say I did a call, I did a Zoom call like this two or three weeks ago for, in Kentucky to talk about reopening. And the guy on the call with me was from Woodford Reserve and talked about how even, you know, the whiskeys had switched over to do, um, hand sanitizer as well, but they couldn't get the plastic bottles and they were delivering it in the Woodford bottles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And the plastic was, was gone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So we'll come back in a few minutes. L, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know you've got a different perspective because you're dealing with all the brewers all over the place. So I'm interested to see kind of what this has been like for you and what you've heard from uh, your friends in the industry. I want to appreciate you, Chris, for having me on, and uh, congratulations to Tripp and Renee for maintaining and weathering the storm. Um, I, it's really hard, especially for an entrepreneur, to still stay in business and be successful, so good job with that, y'all. Um, yeah, I loved uh, beer for a long time because of the complexity of the flavors, uh, my family being a lineage of chefs, so flavor is always big to me, and then the root of beer, and then um, how I finally realized that it was birthed in Africa, um, especially ales, um, it kind of just gave me something to really learn more about. And so leaving Cornell University, my dad got a job here in Atlanta so that we moved here. And um, I was a marketing major in a hotel school. And so I wanted a way to really do something I enjoy. So although I was doing some management gigs and things of that sort, especially in the restaurant business, beer was always a part of my life. Um, I didn't really like any other kinds of alcohol. I just loved the different styles and things of that sort. But then there was a challenge of when I moved to Atlanta, uh, the laws were very archaic. Um, and the limit for beer was 6%. That limits a lot ABV. So that limits a lot of styles of beer. Um, I know y'all can understand me with that. And so I really wanted to be part of the political process. So started writing and joining um, initiatives that were kind of help pushing the law to at least boost that and then help more entrepreneurs and more people come in and open up their own breweries. And so eventually that did happen, but I was covering the scene from a long time ago. Uh, this was around 95 when I really started getting um, serious about being a writer and then really deciding that beer was going to be a part of my life um, and covering it. And one of the things I loved about beer were the people who brewed it. They were a lot of down to earth people people who put up their bootstraps and want to just make things work. Um, and they were chemists. Breweries are, are chemists. 
Um, they are, they are culinary, they are biological. There are there's so many different things that you need to be a brewer and people need to, a lot of people don't understand that how hard it is to make that happen. So uh, covering that and traveling the world under my name, um, being a beer writer, uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of different things. And then I really got serious with it. My real name is Dennis Malcolm Byron. And uh, sounds a little like a law firm. And I wanted to brand myself. I'm a little more of a, a marketing uh, person. I love clothes. I love all those kind of things. I wanted to in incorporate all of that. I love music. I'm a hip hop fanatic. And so I wanted to bring those things together. No one at the time really had a, a name for themselves to do all the things that I was going to uh, bring to the industry. So then I came with the name Ale Sharpton and a lot of, a lot of thinking about it. And his passion I'm, is my passion in terms of the brew industry. And so I did it with that, came with the name Ale Sharpton, and then I think it's a little more memorable than Dennis Malcolm Byron, although I'm happy to be named after my dad and Malcolm X, but still, at the end of the day, uh, Ale Sharpton's a little more of a marketing um, uh, that has a little more of a standpoint. So then from there, I started really going around the world, literally, and meeting the people behind it. So then that came into me being a consultant uh, from design to um, coming up with names, to photography, to position in different ways. And then social media came in and I've done a really good job with that and got a lot more people uh, in touch with me and vice versa and be able to reach out whenever I wanted to worldwide. So that's built the brand a lot. And so it's fun, yes, to talk about beer, taste it, of course, the conversations that come around it. But now with uh, the pandemic and things that happened recently that we've been dealing with, I become more of a consultant on how to maintain. Um, what do the people want to drink? What are people looking for? How are breweries going to survive this without having their tasting rooms open? Uh, what are people looking for with a little bit of money they have now that they're strapped for? They love beer, but what is the most popular styles to have? And so I'm getting these calls. So it's kind of my shift went into uh, pandemic mode where lots survival mode as well. Uh, what do we do? What do I write about? What do people want to read about? So then there's that. And now then the racial, how things are a little um, turbulent, not little, a lot turbulent, especially in our country. Um, I'm becoming a consultant on that part and being a black male, um, I'm, I'm on that side and and I kind of can deliver to these breweries who call me up and I'm talking more than 20 breweries at a time. Uh, what do we say? How do we approach this? So there's a lot of things besides staying afloat as a business to how do we uh, tackle these race relations because uh, I've lived in a predominantly white atmosphere or experienced it throughout my life. Ithaca, I love Ithaca, New York, and it was a very peaceful time and unity, a lot of things going on, but it was predominantly white, and that's upstate New York. And then uh, moving to Shaker Heights, which is about 50-50, but then a lot of my advanced classes that I take, and I've been the only black person or one of the few in that. And then the Cornell, Ivy League, again, the same situation. And then me being a, a black beer authority in the beer business, again, I'm in that situation. So it's always been in my life to um, kind of be a voice, especially for my people. So it's really interesting what's happening now. And, um, you know, we got to tackle this and hopefully there is a remedy besides staying afloat business-wise, staying afloat uh, society-wise. Hey, thank you. And I do want to come back in a few minutes and, and talk a little bit more about the, the inequality and kind of what the industry can do in that area, because I do think it's unique, because uh, this is one of those industries where it brings people together. Sure. Uh, 
got a unique opportunity to do it. But let's go back and, and, and Renee, I want to talk to you for a minute about, um, you know, you talked about going from shipping to six states to 40 states and you, and you accelerated that. Uh, you talked about new uh, processing, new computer, new marketing. What we're hearing consistently from businesses is that they're taking this opportunity to accelerate the innovation that they were probably going to do over the next four to five to six, seven years. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, what was your original plan to get to 40 states? Was that a two-year plan, a three-year plan, a four-year plan? And then talk a little bit more about um, how you kind of accelerated some of the other uh, service sector and technology that you're doing. Sure. Well, um, you know, what's funny is that uh, we focus so heavily on our tasting room that um, I had no plan, zero plan to expand uh, shipping. What we have seen is that shipping is such a complex, laborious, stressful, constantly changing thing when it involves alcohol. Um, it's, it's been honestly miserable to do it for four years. And there have been days when we have thought, let's just close our account entirely and not even bother shipping because the amount of shipping that we do even around the holidays is so small compared to what we do in our tasting room where we're interacting with people and they can taste the product and we can give them the full experience. Even with a great website, even with a really strong social media preference uh, presence, we had zero interest in expanding our shipping, to be honest. Um, and, it, and it's been a real source of stress for us. And no matter how much we try to be compliant and behave, I'm always getting a letter from some state where I have stepped in, <laughs> stepped in it and done the wrong thing because the laws are changing too often. Um, so really it was a blessing um, that, that this happened sort of in, the, in that respect um, because it forced us to realize that shipping was going to be here to stay. It was going to be a place where we needed to grow and so now it's some additional ancillary income, um, income for us. Um, one of the great things about our industry, even though we are really small and nobody, um, nobody really understands what we are because we are so small and so young, particularly in the, in the state of Georgia where there are only about 50 wineries, um, we're kind of more of a tight-knit group as a result. Um, and so I reached out to some folks through um, Georgia Wine Producers, which is our professional organization that helps us network, um, and said, you know, how are you shipping to all these states? How are you doing it? Tell me. And, you know, I, I don't know that I was brave enough or, or, or had the, um, the patience to reach out and, and kind of make those decisions. Um, other people were really um, kind and honest and helpful with me and told me what their experience has been um, in, in using um, a resource like Vino Shipper, which is what we use, which I'm happy to tell anybody about on an individual basis as well, um, because they basically handle all of the painful aspects of what we do. Everything that was making us completely stressed out about the tiny bit of shipping we were doing is now so much easier, and we still make good money, and I was able to do some incentives like $19 flat rate shipping, and if somebody is shipping six bottles or more anywhere in the country, $19 flat rate shipping is a really good deal. Um, so I was able to do that. We were able to do 10% off curbsides. We were able to work it out so people could place orders online and either pick them up or have them shipped or, you know, and, and we just varied whatever we were going to do for people. We also made the systems easier, right? So um, it, it used to be that you could go to my website and you could place an order for your curbsides and just mark that you wanted to pick it up. Um, but so what we found is that now we have these three systems, right? We have tasting room register and we have this shipping system and then we have this weird thing in the middle here that's these curbsides. And, it, and it's just another task. It's another burden for the staff. Um, so what I did is I integrated it 
back over into my register system and by adding some new technology there as well that honestly we use uh we use shopkeep as our point of sale system and because of covid they were basically offering customers an opportunity to try new services that you haven't been previously paying for um, that maybe none of us saw the benefit in uh, try it free for a few months see if you like it and then when all this is over if that ever happens um, and things go back to the new normal then um, we can figure out if we want to keep those services. So we basically took and completely shifted our curbside ordering system and made it something that's just easier on my staff. It pops up on the register, they get an alert. It's a more um, seamless process for them, um, but it also allows us the ability to get them tipped. And what we noticed is that people weren't tipping. People would come for their curbsides and they would prepay online, um, but they, they wouldn't tip because they didn't have an option for that and the idea would escape them and re very rarely did someone have cash. Now, when people did have cash, they were pushing cash on me and saying, please take care of your employees. So, I mean, we have amazing customers, but what we found is that most people weren't tipping at all because they didn't have a way to do that. So now you place your order online at the curb, you can add the tip. So there were all these great little ways that we could innovate and, and help my staff get paid better, to be honest. So what I think is going to happen and what I expect is going to happen is that as our tasting room sales and the, and the traffic that we see um, returns more to normal um, in this process, now we have these two sort of added areas of ancillary income or these additional embellishments that we weren't counting on before um, as as methods to take care of people. I mean, we've always put wine in your car because we feel like that's respectful. Any customer that comes in and buys wine, it's heavy. So if my staff can take it out to your car and put it in your trunk, we're happy to do that. Um, but now, now we promote it. I mean, it's something that we've done, but now we do a lot more of it. And it's really helpful for the mamas that have a car full of kids that can't leave their kids, but wanna do a pickup and maybe traffic in Thomasville's a little weird and parking might be really busy depending on what day it is. So. Um, it's just all these kind of little convenience factors we've been able to add through technology that have made it uh, less stressful on my staff. So now we're doing more. Um, my staff has had an opportunity to learn to do more. They're using more technology. They're, um, they're kind of ripping off the Band-Aid and figuring out how they can um, do more for me. And as a result, I'm rewarding them more. So it's, it's kind of become this really beautiful kind of magical process of that's spooling on itself in a positive way. And, and I just, I can't look at it any other way because it's too depressing to, to look at the pandemic in, in a negative manner. I have to see the good, right? And so uh, my manager is an amazing, amazing person. And there are certain things she's sort of afraid to do that are outside her comfort zone. Because she's human like everyone else, right? She's amazing at this, but she's afraid of that. And this has forced us to go, well, who else is going to do it, right? Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's dig in. Let's do it. If we screw it up, we're going to fix it. We're going to figure this out together. And, I mean, we basically looked at each other and said, do you trust me? Yes. Do you trust me? Yes. All right. Well, take my hand. We're going to get through this. I'm not going anywhere. This business is not going to fold. I'm going to take care of you. Let's rip off all the Band-Aids. And we did. So. I think the services are here to stay. I think people will continue to expect curbside service. They'll expect the conveniences that we're giving them now. And they'll expect the opportunities to tip us. People are making reservations now that didn't respect what we were doing enough to reserve in advance. And now they make a reservation. They dedicate their time to us. They don't rush us through the tasting process and say, well, I got a reservation down the street. Can you hurry it up? Now they come and they stay longer and they it's just quality I feel like we've developed more quality and we're having more quality interactions 
staff feels amazing. They have more knowledge. They're dropping that knowledge all over the place. So it's a really, it's a positive. I see it as positive. So you use this as an opportunity to pivot to some new sectors, but also to go deeper in those relationships with your team members and your customers too. So Absolutely. I mean, these are all things we needed to do. Right. Um, but when were we going to have a timeout to be able to work on them? Right. Uh, never. So it was a horrible situation, but um, we just try to use it as a positive so everybody could grow. And now I think we, we actually have even more unity. So one of the things I was most afraid of is we've got this awesome team and they love each other and they support each other and they have this great mojo as a team. And then COVID happens and I'm like, we're the best team we've ever had in four years and now we're going to lose all this momentum, you know, and, and we're going to lose branding momentum. We're going to use staff momentum. Um, but what's happened is it's all, it's circling back. And I think people appreciate that we do go the extra mile. We do the extra measures to keep them safe. We, we have the extra services. They're not going to go anywhere. We're constantly asking what we can do to make the experience better. You know, people appreciate that. It says something to people that we weren't afraid. We weren't, we weren't blind. We didn't act like this is not something to be afraid of, but, um, I think we were smart and resourceful and consistent and we communicated well and that was important, but those things also affected my staff and how they feel about what they're a part of and, and the things that they can contribute to that. Right. That's awesome, Renee. Thank you. Uh, let's trip. Let's go back to you for a minute. You, you mentioned a little while ago. So Albany and as you know, the Georgia chamber, we spent a lot of time in Albany, both with the quail hunt and working with Barbara and the team down there and with your commissioner, and we know that you guys really were the first hot spot in Georgia. Uh, tell us, how's the community responded? I, I know you guys played an important role in bringing the community together, and I know you made a lot of progress. How's Albany and the region doing now with the virus, and what are you seeing from your peers and your colleagues around town? Um, well, the good news is, is first in, first out. So our uh, we don't have any, I think yesterday, we didn't have any cases at the hospital right now. Um, the community itself, although we've been hit hard, it's uh, we seem to have come through it and be kind of post-COVID right now. So every all the restaurants, everybody's getting back. Although, you know, we it was such an, it, it's interesting to look at things that were going on, I guess, you know, in the north, in areas where while we were having a disaster, other places although they were locked down, they really hadn't experienced anything. And so, you know, it was easy for us to understand the severe, it was easy for us and the, and the people here to understand the severity of it because our entire hospital was basically overrun by it. So it wasn't a, um, it was very much for real. And I think we were just a couple of weeks behind everybody else as far as what, and maybe not a couple, maybe three or four weeks behind everybody else. But, uh, but now things are doing good. We're, we actually have not reopened the tap room quite yet. We weren't, we weren't sure exactly what to do with the tap room. Were we a bar? Were we that? So what we decided to do was remodel. So, so we remodeled the inside. We did some remodeling on the outside. And hopefully we're going to reopen uh, for Father's Day weekend. So everybody mark that on their calendar and come on down because uh, uh, we redid our outside as well as the inside. Um, we want to use the what we what happened with all of this and with the with our hand sanitizer we were able to brand ourselves in areas where we just hadn't been before i mean this was hopefully and i think will be a really good opportunity for us as far as name recognition and to be able to go back into back into places on a 
uh, off-premise accounts and be able to get our, um, uh, to be able to attack those accounts in a different way, in a different light. So I guess that's where, that's where this and another positive thing is, is really we open some other doors to ourselves where that we didn't have before. Um, and really looking to bring the message of organic agriculture, uh, sustainable farming, um, appropriate use of natural resources, which is really what our, really what we sell are those things. So when we talk to our, our marketing people, our sales guys about, about our beer, we're trying to sell the idea of organic farming and sustainable farming through every glass that we put out uh in process and so but that's a really hard message to get out there I think it'd be easy i mean you can you can create the greatest product the greatest product in the world but if nobody talks about it then nobody nobody knows about it then it's uh then it just sits on a shelf somewhere so i think one of the things this has allowed us to do is really get our message out about those things and and is already helping us to open doors where where we weren't before so before we actually open our tap room, we're having an event this weekend, um, Berries and Brews. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was, um, you said you, you liked our uh, Berry Goza. Right. And so, so we, so this was one of our, you know, strange, I, you know, all of the disasters going on. We had a great farming year. Like as far as production in the field goes, our uh, blueberries and blackberries, we probably had the best we've had in the last five years. Um, the cold didn't get us and we had just enough rain. And so we were able to save enough berries to be able to make our berry goza. And we're also having a UPIC event this weekend. So before we open the tap room up, we're gonna have an event out on the farm, um, food, bands, you know, all the work. So um, if people can make it to that. And uh, I guess last, if not least, we also, we do a little non-traditional marketing. Uh, I have a podcast called No Dams Given. Um, our Sholey beer, uh, which is our IPA, we actually give 2% back to the river keepers. It's named after the shoal bass. And for shoal bass uh, to be able to reproduce, they have to have a long uh, segment of undammed river. So thus the podcast, No Dams Given. But uh, yeah, so. Hey, and as a fly fisherman who likes to fly fish for shoal bass, thank you for doing that too, trip. That means a huge, huge deal. No doubt. One more question for you, Trip, before I go to Elle. Um, you mentioned having the event, and I know you do a lot of events in the the facility there. I know you're not open yet, but have you had people have people started to call back now and say, "Hey, I'm, I'm I need a spot for August or for October yet"? Have you had any of that business start coming back yet? Or um, July, end of July and August, I think you know we've got some. I mean, we were. We were booked solid, so that was a huge revenue loss. The tap shutting the tap room down and not doing events was a, a huge revenue loss for um, for us just in general. Uh, people are still a little a little skittish, especially here about getting large crowds together. Um, so, you know, end of July, I think we've started to have a few. Definitely in August. Okay. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Elle, I want to shift gears. You, you brought this up a minute ago and I want to go back to it because it's top of mind and it needs to continue to be top of mind for all of us. But I'm curious, there are lots of businesses trying to figure out how do I engage now in this new national discussion on racial equality? Uh, what do you recommend for wineries and breweries to support this national conversation? I mean, what are you 
advising people, those people listening today, they're going to listen to, to us when we rebroadcast. What do you say to them? How do they engage either the brewery sector or just small businesses in general? And I know that's a loaded question. It might be a little unfair. But <laughs> you, you brought it up a minute ago. I'm going to. Yeah, I brought it up on person on person because it's uh, it's truly a, a very important situation that's going on right now, and it needs to be addressed. And um, a lot of the breweries, and not just breweries, a lot of other industries as well have reached out to me. Um, I have some play in the auto industry and, and a couple other things that I write about. I'm more lifestyle, but beer is my concentration. Um, I know one of the issues is not saying anything uh could be detrimental could be very weird um it's like an analogy of, of watching a game and if there are no if you're on the sidelines and not having any part of the game itself um then you're, you're just seen as not being a player and a, a lot of these things right now that are going on at least saying something or showing you care instead of not saying anything shows you're happy with what's going on and i'm not saying the force uh, you got to feel it, but at least ask questions, uh, create dialogue. And that's one of the great things that beer does is it, it, it brings up conversation. Um, and, you know, they call beer and all, all kind of uh, libations, you know, social lubricants. And it's true. But at the same time, um, not saying anything could be very, very weird. Uh, or at least putting up some type of program or having something where you're not, you're not saying something, but you are kind of helping by maybe helping with foundations or initiatives or organizations that are helping to promote equality uh, through donation uh, of any sort. Uh, money money is always good, but it's about maybe even investing in your own neighborhoods to know if your, na your neighbors are all white, then there's, you reach out a little more. But um the, the black population, especially, and this is all minorities, but black populations are starting, it's growing in terms of appreciation for beer. Uh, there are more festivals, there's Fresh Fest, there's all these ones that are kind of uh, promoting people to brew beer that are African-American or, or uh, Latinx or whatever the case is that you have, Asian. So there, there is a market, but it's not just a market. It's not about sales, it's about people. And knowing that uh, to have a better society is kind of reach out and ask the questions. Okay, so some people are like, hey, I don't know what to say, so I'm not gonna say anything. I won't say anything wrong. Well, how do you remedy that? You ask, you, you create dialogue, conversation uh, through consultation. I've been doing a lot of consultation pro bono, um, but again, I have to eat down the line and it's gonna have to be a little more of a formal kind of a situation where I can work with other corporations or breweries or whatever the case is. But my point is that, um, I'm, I'm passionate to at least teach and help them and understand that um, it's not a white only, um, there's no white only signs on breweries either. Everyone's welcome to have beer, but at the same time, you got to know and serve all your people, everybody, and respect what's going on. And the big thing right now is inequality. I mean, what is, what is the problem with helping that uh, to get rid of that? What is, what, is, what is wrong with that? Why would you hold back on that? And if you do hold back or not say anything, or, or whatever the case is, then you're not helping the issue. You're not helping uh, solve the problem. So that's, that's one of the things I do talk about with them. Staying silent or not doing anything shows you're very happy the way things are. Ale, is there, is there a brewer out there or a winery or someone that you're saying, these guys are doing it right in this mm. unique moment? Um, it's an ongoing thing. Uh, it's, it's, you can do it right one time, 
Um, I've reached out to a lot of people, but it's an ongoing thing. And just speaking that, you know, the beer industry is very trendy. There's certain styles that are hot right now. There's certain um, uh, packaging that's going on. Um, and um, it's more than that. This is a marathon, y'all. This is not something you could change when making one beer and donating 10% of your proceeds to. This is something that you, you show willingness to treat all your people, customers, employees, um, um, vendors who you're working with, give everybody an opportunity. That's what, what deserves a lot of the attention. That's gonna get a lot of my attention. Uh, as far as naming breweries, yes, there are a lot of reached out. Uh, there are minority owned breweries that are there. Uh, Down Home I'm working with. Uh, Sweetwater's reached out to me, uh, Creature Comforts. Uh, really has been uh, very vocal and asking me what to do. Uh, liquor brands as well. Um, so the question, just ask me what's going on, what should I do? There are Asian brew pubs like um, the, the Hop Sticks, uh, Bavana, that's going on right now in uh, Raleigh. So there are a lot of them. I'm not gonna call it the ones that aren't doing anything yet, <laughs> but, but for right now, really, just really understanding that there is an issue is, is really big right now. Well, listen, I appreciate it. You guys, it's great advice, Al, and uh, we appreciate it so much. Mm -hmm. uh, Renee, Tripp, you guys for what you're doing. Thank you uh, down in Southwest Georgia. We appreciate the success. Can't wait to be back with both of you and both of your facilities soon uh, when we're back on the road. Uh, if you uh, are joining us late on this, it'll be uh, reposted on our website at gachamber.com slash COVID-19, as well as our friends at GPB and over on GNN. Uh, encourage you to continue to follow the Georgia Chamber on our social media, particularly for the next two weeks as the Georgia General Assembly goes back in and we work with them on the issues that you need for long-term recovery, um, as well as resiliency, as well as how we start healing and moving forward and passing a hate crime bill in the state of Georgia. Uh, but continue to practice safety. I don't care what your business does. We're all in the health and safety business now. Uh, and uh, come to our website for more resources. And hopefully by the end of the week or next week, we'll have even more resources for you out there to train your employees and keep them safe and keep your customers safe. So guys, thank you for being with us. Thank you all for joining us all today. And may God continue to bless our great state. Thanks so much. 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 Thanks so much.